You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Right, maybe seated. Thanks for standing for the reading of God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Uh, we do have Redemption Hill kids today, so kids ages two to four. If it serves you and your family, you can go over to Miss Erica right over there, and they'll just be right across the hall. Oliver has made his way. That kid was not messing around. He knows where to go. He knows the drill. Um, full disclosure for you this morning, I was at youth camp this weekend. Just got here, came from there to here, and if you've ever been around a bunch of teenage boys, they don't go to bed till like one. So I'm tired, but I'm here. I'm excited to be here. Don't get me wrong. But if you get like one of those hippopotamus yawns, you now know why. <laughs> it's uh, when you're not in your own bed and you put a bunch of youth boys. Youth girls are great. Yeah, youth girls, they, they're like, we want to go to bed. Get them to bed. So those youth boys, man. They, they're wild and they smell and all kinds of stuff. So I always tell, I used to do youth for four years, five years. And I always said, there's two things you got to use, guys. Your Bible every day. Your Bible and deodorant. <laughs> those two. That's the first thing I said. Even though I wasn't in charge, I made sure I told him. Um, but anyways, good to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to get into our new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, you're going to be noticing, um, in light of what we've already gone through in the book of Esther, we're really switching gears in a massive way. For six weeks, we took a look at the book of Esther, 10 chapters. And as you know, as many of you know, as the way, because of the way Esther is written, that's a historical narrative, uh, the pace seemed really fast. We were just going boom, 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 one chapter after another because many of these chapters and sections are related to one another. I, I, I kind it to like a, reading a novel or watching a movie, just a bunch of scene changes. There was constantly action going on. Well, beginning today, we're going to slow way down. It's like we're going to go from riding in a Lamborghini at 90 miles an hour to getting out of the car and enjoying the scene. It's like you're getting in the Lamborghini, you kind of get up to the top of the mountain, and you're like, all right, we're just going to park it, and we're going to enjoy the scenery. We're not going to get in for a while, we're just going to sit and enjoy. We're going to sit, listen, and learn, and consider how to apply the teachings of Christ. So, for several months, yes, I said for several months, we will be in Matthew 5, six, and seven, learning about the Sermon on the Mount. And in a sense, my sermon is kind of like an exposition of the most excellent sermon ever preached. A natural question might be to ask, why preach the Sermon on the Mount, right? Why go here? Frankly, as I've been studying this particular topic, there are some traditions within Protestantism that would say the Sermon on the Mount no longer applies to us. I don't agree with that. So why preach the Sermon on the Mount? And why go so slowly? You know, I could, I could preach every Sunday until the age of 90 and still come to passages in the Bible that I have not preached. So why these three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew? Several reasons. First, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to be willing to pay attention, listen, and apply. The Sermon on the Mount is going to crush your soul. I don't mean that in a negative way. 
When I say crush your soul, I mean this teaching of the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching from the Beatitudes from Christ will show you how helpless you are apart from Christ. You are helpless unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. This sermon is also going to challenge you how to live. Like, I remember when, I, when the Lord saved me, and one of the natural questions that came out of that was like, okay, now what? Like, how do you, how do you live? A consistent theme throughout the entire Bible is that God has chosen a people to live distinctly in the world. Right? We're not in the world, but we're not of the world, right? We're of the world, excuse me. We're in the world, but not of the world, excuse me. So the Sermon on the Mount shows us how to live distinctly before God. Living distinctly before God does not mean living up to a code of conduct. That's kind of the natural tendency for some people. Okay, so what's the checklist that I got to do to live before God? I don't want you to think that way. What I want you to think is like, what does this do to my character? It's not to say we are to live in a particular way doing with do's and don'ts. It's not what I'm saying. But we got to get the character thing down first. What are we, what's God doing to us in here? I want you to remember these words as we traverse through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to repeat these words. Actions follow essence. Actions follow essence. Jesus is going to go after your heart to change your life. Your essence or being, if you're into philosophy, we call this ontology, is about who you are deep down to the core. And who you are deep down to the core, Christianity uses the word heart, will impact how you live. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you read it from chapter 5 all the way end of chapter 7, you know it's impossible to obey all the time. Like, part of what we see here, and some people say it this way, like, Jesus is upping the ante about how to live in comparison to the Old Testament. It's not about not murdering your enemy. It's about what's going on in your heart. That's what Jesus goes after, right? He's up in the ante in that sense. So what you need is ongoing transformation. What you need, what Sean Powers needs is help. As the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says this, Jesus came and lived, and died, and rose again, and sent the Holy Spirit in order that you and I might live the Sermon on the Mount. Notice what Lloyd-Jones is not saying here. He is not saying you need to live up to the expectations of the Sermon on the Mount, but because of the gospel at work in your life, you live the Sermon on the Mount. That is a fine distinction, but one worth noting. You see, if you try to obey everything in the Sermon on the Mount in your own strength, you head down this path we call legalism. And good luck with that. It's a tangent that I kind of want to go down, but I'm not going to. Right? But that's where you end up. You try to do everything in your own strength, and then you project everything that you're living onto onto everyone else. 
That's not what Jesus is trying to show us this morning. That is not the road to go down. That road is a dead, re- a dead end, a dead road. Sure, you might be a good person if you go down that road in a worldly sense, right? You might make good choices. But the path toward hell is filled with a lot of good people trying to live a moral life. No, we want to approach the teachings of Jesus knowing that we are helpless and we need and invite the grace and mercy of God in our lives so that we may live distinctly for him. So we must resist the temptation to think that if you live perfectly to fulfill all the, what we got, commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, then all of a sudden you are a Christian and heaven bound. Resist that temptation. Rather, it is because you are a Christian that you have this longing desire to follow Christ. Not only to follow what he says, but how he lives. Again, who we are comes first. Then the actions follow. You know, even how the Sermon on the Mount is organized helps us to see how heart change leads to lifestyle change. Now, heart change leads to ongoing character change. For eight weeks, we will look at the Beatitudes, right? And then we will pivot to what it looks like to live distinctly before God. The Beatitudes get at the heart. And what follows calls us to grow in our character, right? Jesus is like, I'm going to get at your heart. We're going to talk about that first. And then this is what it looks like to live out your life in light of the things I'm doing in your heart. I want to add one more introductory point before praying and getting getting into the sermon. Generally speaking, most people do want to live a good life. I get that, right? People in this room, I think you all would say, hey, I like to live a good life. Cool. Uh, Most people want to flourish in life. You want to flourish. You want your family to flourish. You've heard it said that flourishing in this life is like living the American dream and living the good life. Like if you just achieve the American dream, then you've made it. Well, Jesus will tell you what it actually looks like to flourish. If your understanding of flourishing and living the good life is the American dream, then you are sorely mistaken. And Jesus is going to take a wrecking ball to that paradigm. You need it, and I need it. What Jesus shows us actually makes the American dream look puny and worthless. The Sermon on the Mount also challenges the notion that the good life can be discovered by looking at yourself. It's not going to happen either. If you're going to continue to look at yourself to live the good life or try to flourish, you're headed down a road that is, again, a dead end. Lord willing, the words of Christ will call, cause us to look up to God, to teach us, to show us how to live and how to flourish. Therefore, one question I need to ask before I pray. Does Jesus have the authority to tell us what it looks like to flourish. 
Like, we've got to actually solve that question first. Like, does he actually have the authority to be like, hey, this is what's going on in your heart, Sean Powers. Knock this off, Sean Powers. Do it this way. Because if you do it that way, guess what? There's a lot of pain over there. Does Jesus have the authority to actually say that to me? If Jesus does not have the authority to teach us what it means to flourish, then we, got, we actually can like pack up and go home. Like we can just call it good and let's get brunch. Go try and live the American dream. Keep on with a therapeutic deism that constantly aims to get you to look at yourself. But if we can see in the Bible that Jesus does have the authority to speak into our hearts, if we truly can see that and believe that, then I think it's worth paying attention. So allow me to pray and then let us dig into my introductory sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Almighty God, one of my chief prayers over this weekend for me and for this entire church is that we would be in awe of who you are and know that Jesus not only has authority from eternity past, but he has authority in our lives right now. And so we come to his most excellent teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and know he has ultimate authority. The things of this world do not compare to the authority of Jesus. So I pray that that particular truth would settle in our hearts this morning so that as we traverse and go through the Sermon on the Mount, we would not forget that it is our Lord speaking to us, and he indeed has the authority to speak into our hearts and our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a person can make the argument that the most debated and beloved chapters in the Bible are the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapters 5 to 7, right, of Matthew. Throughout history, Christians and non-Christians held, have held the Sermon on the Mount in actually high regard. Here's, how, here's several quotes. Now, I do not endorse how the Sermon on the Mount is being used in these quotes, but as you will see, you'll get a sense of its popularity. Here's what Gandhi said about the Sermon on the Mount. That's right, Gandhi. The Sermon on the Mount went straight to my heart. This is Gandhi reading a Christian text. It went straight to my heart. The Sermon on the Mount left a deep impression on my mind when I read it. Well, I mean, many people hold Gandhi in high regard, and now he's commenting on the words of Christ. Here's 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's actually an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a book I read after the Lord saved me. I highly recommend it. It's good stuff. But here's what he said. The restoration of the church must surely depend on a new kind of monasticism. He's, he's looking back at the Catholic church and how they had monks and all that kind of stuff. But he's like, no, nah, we don't need that kind. It's a new kind. And he says, which is nothing in common with the old life of uncompromising discipleship following Christ according to the Sermon on the Mount. I believe the time has come to gather people together to do this. And this is Bonhoeffer living during World War II, right? And he's trying to help Jews who are being taken away to concentration camps. Have you ever heard of Frank Sinatra? <clears throat> if you're older than the age of 45, 50, maybe younger, maybe you still got that, Frank Sinatra. He, he's actually read the Sermon on the Mount. 
I couldn't believe this. But I, I don't know much about Frank Sinatra, so maybe I shouldn't be surprised. So he said this. I believe that God knows what each of us wants and needs. It's not necessarily for us to make it to church on Sunday to reach him. You can find him any place. And if that sounds heretical, my source is pretty good, Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm guessing Frank has a low view of the church just from reading this quote, but you kind of see his point, right? You ever heard of the uh, dystopian novel 1984? Well, the author, George Orwell, saw the power from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's an interesting quote. I, I'm not even sure I understand what he's saying, but he's, he's clearly got something in mind. An army of unemployed, led by millionaires, quoting the Sermon on the Mount, that is our danger. <laughs> it's interesting to see from Orwell, unemployed, millionaires, and the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount converge in the mind of Orwell. So even he's thinking about it. He saw the combination as a threat to his particular worldview. Here, here's one more from President Harry S. Truman. And frankly, I could do this all day in terms of people who have been impacted in some way or another by the Sermon on the Mount. I doubt if there's any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find a happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. You can think World War I, World War II, that was like Harry Truman's context. Again, I'm simply trying to show the popularity of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Every person I cited admired the teachings of Jesus, but for different reasons. Because of the <clears throat> excuse me, immense popularity, the words of Christ have been used with different motives and in different interpretations. Gandhi thought the sermon sat alongside other really good religious ancient texts. Bonhoeffer believed that the sermon shows us how to live the Christian life, and you'll see I'm sympathetic with Bonhoeffer's interpretation. Sinatra did not care for the church or religion, at least it seems from that quote, but the Sermon on the Mount conveyed a level of authority in his life. If I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure what Orwell's trying to get at here, but if his general worldview is any indication, he knew the power of faith in God, which is something that I do know about Orwell, is that something he fairly disdained, right? And coming off the heels of World War I and World War II, President Truman thought the Sermon on the Mount could solve the problems of the world. Uh, during the time of Truman, the Sermon on the Mount was used to express a, a different kind of social gospel in society. A little bit different than what we experience today, but that's what was going on during his time. And again, like I said, I could go on for hours quoting musicians, theologians, philosophers, and politicians who admired the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5-7. to But here's the thing. All these admirers contradict each other in interpretation, meaning, and application. When you read Orwell and then you read Bonhoeffer, you sense a massive disconnect and a difference between how they understand the teachings of Christ. So the natural question on the table for us this morning is, how should we approach the most famous sermon ever preached? What is our approach? Because all these figures I quoted were going in vastly different directions. Fortunately, Jesus tells us why he preached the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus preached it, but he also tells us why. Jesus did not try to be coy. Jesus is not confused, and we should not be confused either. Right before Jesus teaches, we read this in Matthew 4. 
And he, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The theme recurs multiple times throughout the gospel of Matthew. In chapter 9, almost the same wording is used to describe what Jesus is teaching. Here it is again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the, of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. On a macro level, do you want to know what Jesus was teaching? He was teaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, but there's more to come. This kind of is already not yet. But here's the point I'm trying to make, and this is what Gandhi and company missed. You can't take Matthew 5 to 7 and lift it out of the context of the gospel of Matthew and the entire Bible. You can't do that. Don't do that. Gandhi, Sinatra, Orwell, and Truman understood and applied the Sermon on the Mount by lifting the sermon out of its context, out of the Bible. Because of this, they did not understand the reason why Jesus taught in the first place. Like, they missed the target badly. You would think that if you're going to uphold the most famous sermon ever taught by Jesus, ever taught, period, that you'd want to know the reason why he taught. Like, think of it this way. If I were to give you my sermon manuscript, just give it to you, take it home, and you could take one or two sentences out of paragraphs, right, out of context, and lift them out of the context of the sermon, you could begin to mold that and interpret that from your perspective and from your worldview. Like, for example, if I say, wives, submit to your husbands, which I have said in a sermon on Matthew 5, 22 to 33, but someone didn't listen to my entire sermon on that passage in Ephesians, you would think that I'm a misogynist. Right? Some people would go there. But if that person actually read or listened to the sermon, like you might not like what I'm saying or what, Bible, what the Bible says about that, but you're not going to walk away thinking I'm a misogynist. Right? So you've got to understand things within context. Same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. The precious truths of the Sermon on the Mount can only be understood when you allow the surrounding context to drive the words of Christ. So I'm comfortable in saying that Gandhi was wrong in his interpretation and understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. We live in a world where Conclusions are made by 30-second statements taken out of context, right? We see this in every news cycle, right? Just turn on the news. Things are taken out of context all the time. And I'm begging you, and I don't beg often, please do not do this with the Bible. Please do not do this with the words of Christ. If I were to give you a quiz right now, and, and the question was this, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? I, hopefully you're going to answer, A, it's about the kingdom of God, because that's what we see around the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and B, it's about flourishing, it's about you flourishing in the kingdom of God. Before Jesus begins to preach about the kingdom of God, we read that he went up a mountain. That's Matthew 5, 1, 7. It says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came with him, right? Fair enough, just describing the scene. 
when Jesus finishes preaching on the kingdom of God, he comes down the mountain. This is Matthew 8.1. This is, this is the back end. This is the second bookend of the Sermon on the Mount. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. A beautiful aspect of Holy Scripture is its subtleness. Um, there are times when the Bible says something, and it takes slowing down to see the significance. Here's what I mean. The terrain or the topography of the sermon may seem like an insignificant detail. But throughout the Bible, it's interesting that we often see God meet with his people when they're on a mountain. Like the significant moments. This is a very cool trope in the Bible. I think Jesus teaching on a mountain is intentional and symbolic. It's meant to remind us of the time Moses went up Mount Sinai, right? Moses went up to Mount Sinai to meet with God, and he eventually came down with what we know as the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. While I do not think Jesus is disregarding the Old Testament commandments with the imperatives in this sermon, I do think the symbolism of being on a mountain points to the authority of Christ, which is really what all this sermon is about, the authority of Jesus to speak into our lives. And there's something symbolic going on here as Jesus goes up the mountain and he's about to preach. God entrusted Moses with authority when he went up and went down the mountain, but Jesus has more authority than Moses to teach and preach. The teachings of Jesus were unlike the other religious leaders, and the setting of his sermon beautifully complemented the words that were about like, to come out of his mouth. Here's another comparison that is worth pointing to regarding Moses and Jesus. Moses went up by himself, and he came down by himself. Jesus goes up the mountain, taking his disciples and a massive crowd with him. Jesus is going to teach every listener about what it means to live in God's kingdom. When Moses came down, if you know the story, Moses came down, what does he see? Like, Israel made a golden calf, and now they're worshiping the golden calf because they couldn't wait a little longer for Moses to get back. Like, so, come on, guys. And even Moses' brother Aaron's in on the job. What's going on here? But Jesus, the Son of God, takes his people with him, and he would empower his people with the Holy Spirit to follow him. A much different leader, a greater leader, a man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, who has much more authority than Moses ever had. Here's another insight into the teaching of the kingdom of God by Jesus. Jesus is going to preach, and then he's going to model. He practices what he preaches. It's easy to turn on the TV and see some talking head, religious or non-religious, spouting out things we should or should not be doing. Frankly, the hypocrisy during the time of Christ and in our day is mind-numbing. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. For example, here's what we are going to see as we go through the Beatitudes. Jesus models for us what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus is going to show us how to mourn. Jesus demonstrates what it means to be meek. We see what it looks like to hunger and thirst for righteousness through the life of Christ. We see the power of mercy in the life of Christ. Jesus is obviously pure in heart, and we see that in the life of Christ. And through the blood of the cross, Jesus demonstrated what it means to be a peacemaker. 
And then Jesus models what it means to be blessed, even though he was unjustly persecuted. Now, if you travel through those Beatitudes, eight or nine, depending on your perspective, you see Jesus is going to model every single one of those. That's one of the things about the Gospel of Matthew that is so cool, is that he writes the Beatitudes, and he ensures that he's going to make sure we see Jesus living that out later in his Gospel. When you follow someone who does not practice what they preach, how does that make you feel? Right? Fortunately, Jesus did practice what he preached. Because Jesus did practice what he preached, we can have the confidence to receive what he says and the confidence to emulate how he lived. After Jesus comes down the mountain, he will show the people what it means. He will show us what it means to live distinctly for God. Here's another reason to listen to what Jesus says about living in the kingdom of God. Jesus has eternal authority. Again, I'm just trying to set up the next 28-ish weeks of how we are to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has authority, and he has eternal authority. The authority of Christ to teach was not given to him. It's not like someone tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, buddy, authority's yours. No. The Son of Man, the Son of God, has always had the authority to teach. So it's no wonder that the crowds sensed his authority as he was teaching. Here's the other bookend to the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now, we could stop there and be like, all right, cool. I've had enough seminary professors where I'm sitting there. I'm like, all right, that's good stuff. I like that. I'm astonished. I'm amazed. You know a lot of good things. But if you go on to verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I have a couple thoughts on these two verses, and then I'm going to show you how to apply these verses. First, obviously the crowds were amazed. Even if the crowd did not fully grasp who was teaching them, the power of the teachings of Christ could not be denied. Second, and I've already mentioned this. Jesus, the Son of Man, has the authority to preach. And you know what? The, the crowd was sensing the vibe. Like they're getting it. They've heard a lot of teachings before. And then Jesus rolls around, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and the crowd's like, whoa, this is new. This is different. I haven't heard anyone preach like this before. I'm not talking about your favorite preacher, Pickett. We're talking about something vastly greater. Third. Jesus is compared to the scribes. Again, the Bible does not have insignificant details, including this one. The scribes were like our modern-day lawyers, but who knew their Old Testament? Scribes were educated to know their Bible inside out. They memorized the law. If the Pharisees served as the pastors, the scribes were half lawyers and half academic theologians. The point is this, the crowds were sensing from their point of view at that time that no man, that this no-name man, an uneducated man, had the authority, more knowledge, and more awareness than all the other top religious leaders of their day. Like we, you know, I've been in enough school situations. I've spent way too much in school, um, spent too much time in school. Where I know, like, dude with two PhDs is like, you look up to him, and you're like, he must know a lot. He's got those PhDs. But then that guy comes around who doesn't have any PhDs, no education, but he's way smarter than the guy with two PhDs. I think you would pay attention. 
And I think we need to pay attention. The crowd's acknowledgement of Jesus should cause us to consider where we find our ultimate authority in this life. Now, on the one hand, God created the world with structure and order and baked into the order of God's creation are people with authority, right? That certainly is true. A cursory look at the Bible shows us that the home and the church points to this fact. On the other hand, Jesus is the final authority. For example, I'm a pastor, right? You know this. We read in Holy Scripture that God grants pastors authority. However, there is a higher authority in your life, and guess what? It is not me. It's not me. It shouldn't be me. I don't want it to be me. Let's say you hear something from me that causes you to pause, right? What do you do? Who do you appeal to? Well, one appeal is to look to God and what God has said in his word, the Bible. The authority of God is always preeminent, always preeminent. Beyond the church and home, we know influential voices attempt to inform how you think and live, right? Let's just get outside the church and home for a moment. There are voices that are speaking into your life. Perhaps it's that person you follow on social media. Maybe it's a politician or perhaps that podcaster. In our age where millions of different voices can be streamed from your phone, I could grab my phone right now and there are a million, million different people, outlets of people who can, you could speak to me, right? That's there in this age. It's essential to settle the question, where do you find your final and ultimate authority? Who is the ultimate authority in your life? At the end of the day, when all the chips are on the table, where do you turn? That's the question on the table as we head to the Sermon on the Mount. Who has the authority to speak? When the crisis hits, where do you go? If the answer is anyone other than Jesus, then I would suggest you reprioritize the authority structure in your life. Again, I'm not dismissing the good friend who provides solid counsel. I'm not dismissing that podcast that you listen to that really helps you and ministers to you and perhaps you process something. I'm not, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm, I'm simply saying, what is that final authority? What I'm suggesting is that the org chart of authority in your life is top-down, and at the top of the org chart is King Jesus. After Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd's org chart of authority was radically changed. Remember, they're listening to the scribes, they're listening to the Pharisees, they listen to Jesus, and they, we haven't heard this guy before, and all of a sudden it's like, org chart, oh, Jesus is at top. This dude's at top. Everything else kind of falls down after that. For so long, the religious leaders were preeminent, but no longer. Jesus is the game changer. He is the GOAT, greatest of all time. He is the Son of God and Son of Man. I want to share another reason why Jesus has the authority to preach and to preach into your life specifically. After Jesus comes down the mountain, what do we read in Matthew 8? So we've got the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're not going to get into Matthew 8 and 9, but what do we see? In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, several miracles are performed by Jesus. Why? Like, you ever think about why? Why all the miracles? What's going on here? 
What's the point? The miracles also point to the authority of Jesus. Here's a fantastic passage that punctuates the authority of Christ. Again, I want you to feel and to know the authority of Christ because as we begin to go through the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to know that it's God speaking to you. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. Here's the story. And getting into the boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. So like the dude can't move. He needed his friends to bring him over to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now that is not the response you would expect at that moment in the story. Like the dude can't walk and the expectation is, Jesus, we know you've healed people. We need you to heal this guy. But Jesus says, no, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man, here it is, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. I take that to mean a reverential fear. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Like, like let's get this straight. Like, this is a pretty awesome story. Some people brought Jesus a paralytic. Jesus forgives his sins. The scribes go bonkers. They go nuts. Jesus gives the scribes in a lesson in forgiveness 101. Jesus signals to them that because he is God, he has the authority to forgive sins. And then he turns back to the paralytic and says, hey, rise and walk and take your bed and go home. All for what? To show everyone he has ultimate authority. That's the point of the story. That comes right after the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. As we approach the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to constantly to remember the authority of Christ to speak into your life. As I said, the Beatitudes are going to challenge your character. The teaching on the Beatitudes is going to pierce your soul. But, and this is very important, there is a tremendous amount of grace and mercy from God to shape your heart. To shape your heart. One of my prayers for you is, as we see your heart shaped by God, is that you will also then model Christ. As you allow Christ to speak to your heart by the power of the Spirit, that also you begin to model Christ. Again, here is the concise way to think about the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. Actions follow essence. Or you can say, essence precedes actions. After going through the Beatitudes... I want you to remember the authority of Christ when we learn about these topics. This is the list of topics that we're going to go through. Christ has the authority to speak into your life about anger, lust, divorce, taking oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, worldly treasures versus earthly treasures, need more fingers, anxiety, judging others, rat 12, the goodness of God the Father, the golden rule, 
good fruit versus bad fruit and building your house, your life on the rock who is Jesus Christ. Jesus has the authority to speak into every one of those topics in your life. It's a lot. So remember, Sean Powers is not your ultimate authority. I'm not. Your favorite theologian is not your ultimate authority. Your favorite author is not your final authority. Your final authority is Jesus Christ, and it is Christ who judges all other worldly authorities, including me. Jesus is going to challenge me and you to live distinctly for God, which means that we will hopefully continually be transformed by the grace of God. In the letter to Titus, we see how the grace of God saves and changes a person. It's a helpful text to help us understand what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. For the grace of God has appeared. What is the grace of God appeared for, right? Bringing salvation to all people. That's great. We know that. By God's grace, you are saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8, we're there. But what else is God's grace for? What else? Training us to renounce ungodliness. God's grace is available to you to renounce ungodliness. God's grace is available to you to renounce worldly passions. God's grace is available to you to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You begin to see how that passage begins to apply to what we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount. God's grace is available to you to live in a way that honors Him and lives distinctly before Him. So in the months ahead, you will see how the authority of Christ, coupled with the grace of God, allows you to live what we call a virtuous life, right? A virtuous life. You can live a life of flourishing. I'm not saying it's easy living the Christian life. You've never heard me say that. You never will hear me say that. The Christian life is not easy. The Christian life is hard, but we also know it is good. It is good. The idea that we're to live distinctly before God in his kingdom is not a new idea. God wanted Adam to Eve to live distinctly. God wanted Israel to live distinctly. Now God wants his new covenant people, you and me, to live distinctly. And living distinctly takes work. But there's more than enough grace and mercy to allow you to pursue a path that is distinct for the glory of God. The people of God in the Old Testament did not live distinctly because of idolatry, oftentimes. The same temptation exists for the people of God in our day. And there's another ingredient that I would add to the pot in terms of things that would keep us from living distinctly before our great God. I'm going to go back to my friend Martin Lloyd-Jones this morning. He wrote this years ago, but I think it still applies today. He said this, I do not think it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, at last, this is really tough to take, superficiality. I mean, I quoted him because I don't think he's wrong. I really don't. That's one of the temptations that we see for ourselves and generally speaking within the church, to live a superficial Christian life. And that's not what Jesus wants for you. Part of the problem with the church is that she lacks the depth of thought and character. The reason for this problem is that the church has attempted to wrest away authority from Jesus and his word. We're placing our ultimate authority in other buckets. The church, generally speaking, 
does not stand in holy fear of the authority of Christ. This is always, honestly, this is the perpetual issue for the church, and we must be aware of it. So go ahead, think for this week. Ask 10 Christians, who's your ultimate authority? See their response. Ask the question to you, who's your final authority in this life? Who ultimately can speak to your heart and tell you about how to live? So my prayer is that we would humbly come before God. I pray that we would embrace the authority of Christ. And I pray that the teaching of Christ will impact our lives. Almost finished. Back to my question from the beginning. Does Jesus have the authority to tell us what it looks like to flourish? That's the case I've been trying to make this morning. Does Jesus actually have that authority? If you're a Christian, I hope the answer is yes. He does have that authority. If you're unsure, I do pray for you that the needle would move in the weeks ahead. If it's over here and you're like, I don't know if he has that final authority. I pray that as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, that needle will move by, by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you'll say, yes, he does have that authority. Jesus has the authority to speak, and by the power of the Spirit, may we receive what he teaches. I want to leave you with this concluding summary. The Sermon on the Mount is first about the authority of Christ. Do not forget that as we go through all these challenging teachings from Christ. It is about the authority of Christ. But as you will see, because of the authority of Christ, his people are called to live in a particular way. The Sermon on the Mount can shape your life. It can turn your world upside down for your good and for God's glory. What the Sermon on the Mount can do for you is give you what I call a moral vision for your future. Like, how do you live your, your life and give you a moral vision for the future? So I don't know what's in your past. I don't know what struggles or sins you've brought to church this morning. But by focusing on Christ with the help from the Spirit, your future can begin to model Christ. So allow the authoritative Son of Man and Son of God to shape that moral vision for your life. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.